Every person has unique dignity. Every person is made in the image of God, but not as just an abstract human nature. It's as male and female were made in the image of God. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today we're exploring the complementarity of men and women as understood and lived by Catholics. This topic could be a can of worms, but I'm going to do my best to illuminate the issue with the assistance of competent theologians and more importantly, stories. This episode opened with Dr. Andy Lichtenwalner. Andy has been heading up the Secretariat for Laity, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth at the USCCB for the last six years. I asked him to define complementarity for us. So men and women are different, different in pretty important ways, but we're also equal in who we are as persons. We're equal in dignity, but we're not the same. And that's what complementarity is about. It's about building on that difference to make something that's beautiful, that's really complementary, and it shows in so many different aspects of life. This is the crucial point, not only for the concept of complementarity, but for all of Catholic theology. The body matters. We are not ghosts in the machine or spiritual sparks of light that are trapped in random pieces of flesh that could be swapped out for others without affecting the essential identity of the person. We are body people. So if the body matters, it follows that the fact that there are two models or two ways of being a human body, male and female, that has to matter too. But it's complicated, right? Some people use very deeper notions of reciprocity and the term asymmetrical reciprocity. There's a mutualness between man and woman, but there's also an inexhaustible mystery for each one and that the other can never contain, can never grab, and that is is left there. So there's not as if kind of two halves coming together. I think John Paul spoke about it in terms of two reciprocally completing ways of being embodied or bodily persons. Man is a complete person. A woman is a complete person. But they're made for each other. Their very bodies speak of the other but also speaks of the body as, and the person as a gift, made to be a gift for the other. And that's not just for marriage. Obviously, marriage is is written into our bodies, but not all of us are called to marriage. All of us are called to be a gift of love for other people. That's John Paul II's insight about the body having a spousal meaning. He's not saying that everyone must get married to be fulfilled. He's saying everyone must love to be fulfilled. And that gift of love is inscribed in our very bodies. Marriage is a very special and unique form of communion of persons, but we're all made for communion. We're all made for love. We always have to respect and retain the mystery of each human person. The tendency sometimes is to try to stereotype things or to say like it's about what you're doing, but it's actually, no, it's about who we are who we are as a son, as a brother, as a husband, as a father. When we are born, we are marked forever as a son or a daughter. We come into the world already marked as a son or a daughter. And that's so vital. 
And it's a great blessing when we're able to have that reaffirmed throughout our life. Even when we're not, we're still a son or daughter. And it's a sign that we were made for relationship and that we're destined for God. This is about who we are, not about what we can or cannot do. Of course, this has not always been understood or lived for much of human history. Let's just say most of human history. So welcome to the results of the fall, people. Read Genesis chapter 3 if you need some proof. Complementarity is perhaps most easily seen when you look at mothers and fathers. When I think of how men and women parent, I mean, it's easy when you look at babies and young children, especially in terms of mothering, the type of closeness they have with their own babies that is unique, that a father just can't have because a baby's not supposed to grow inside of us. And the mother being able to be close to that child and nurturing that child and women who are able to breastfeed have that opportunity to provide that closeness and that nurturing to the child. And that's something that is very visible and physical. The father stands on the outside of some of that, but then begins to enter in, you know, as soon as the baby is born, being able to offer a closeness and nurturing warmth. But it's different. Andy emphasizes that what each parent contributes is intangible. When it comes to complementarity and what moms and dads offer, you can't really measure it. You can't quantify it. It's there, and you give it, and then you see it blossom as kids grow up. Andy shares this story about helping to wean his youngest daughter, Cecilia. 2 o'clock in the morning or 1.30, Cecilia would wake up and want mommy. I would come in, pick her up, and bring her to a new location and bring her downstairs and just be with her and let her kind of fall asleep with me. It was a great bonding time for me as a dad. I looked forward to it, even though it was kind of tough. I didn't look forward to waking up in the middle of the night. But actually having the opportunity to be with my baby daughter in that way was just a great gift. Let's stay on this topic of moms and dads parenting differently and turn to Dr. Deborah Savage. My name is Dr. Deborah Savage. I'm a faculty member at the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity. You may recognize Deborah's voice from Episode 7 on adoption. Deborah shares this story about when she and her husband had recently adopted their daughter, Maddie. To set the scene, Deborah and Andrew had brought Maddie home not too long ago. She's probably a couple weeks old, and Deborah is exhausted. So Andrew, to be nice, says, why don't you take a nap? I wake up from my nap. I feel really relieved and, and refreshed, really confident that Andrew has been caring for Maddie all this time. And I walk out into the kitchen, and there is Maddie laying on the butcher block island in the middle of our kitchen with its tile floor, Andrew, nowhere to be found. And in fact, he didn't come back for another 20 minutes. He said when he got, when he returned, what's the big deal? She can't roll over. My instinct in that moment was of panic. I said to him, what the heck, words to that effect, is wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? You don't leave a newborn laying alone in the middle of of a table in the kitchen. I mean, she literally had maybe a square foot around her protecting her from falling off the butcher block island onto the tile floor below. And yes, I know, honey, I said that she can't roll over yet. I know she's only a few weeks old. But that moment of seeing my daughter, my brand new baby daughter, completely alone in the kitchen, it was primal. It really was. It was 
you know, you think about mama grizzly bears. <laughs> That's how I felt. I'm predicting that right now, the women listening had a visceral reaction to this image of a baby on a kitchen island. I know I did. Deborah shares a saying about complementarity in parenthood. They say that if it weren't for moms, children would never make it to the age of four. On the other hand, if it weren't for dads, they'd never learn how to take risks. And some of this has to do with our brains. Men, their brains are wired front to back. And women's brains are wired side to side. So both hemispheres of the brain are networked in women. And it gives us this ability to see sort of sideways. We take in more information in a heartbeat than men do because that's what gives them their gift, which is to focus. Here's a story about an incident at the playground. Maddie's about six or seven. We're at the playground. So I was sitting over on the bench watching her play, watching all the kids play. And in front of me on the curb are these two dads talking very passionately, very eagerly about something, I don't know what. And I noticed that one of the man's young sons had climbed all the way to the top of the piece of equipment that was right there, very high up. And I further noticed that this little boy is literally hanging by a thread from this bar. And I think to myself, that little boy is going to fall, and he's going to fall very far. This is not good. And I'm beginning to think to myself, should I get up and go and catch him? Because I can just see it's happening. And these two men are not paying any attention at all. They're involved in their conversation. As I begin to move from my peripheral vision, I see a blur come running past me and the men in an attempt to catch the little boy before he falls. It's the mom, and she doesn't quite make it. So the little boy falls to the sand, starts crying, etc. But this mom had been playing soccer with her daughter in a field on the other side of the park, saw from that distance that her son was about to fall and came sprinting like an Olympic runner across the field, just barely in time not to catch him. The father was sitting right there. But what's so interesting about this, something that people are really not aware of, is that women literally have better peripheral vision. We have more rods and cones in our eyes, which makes it possible for us to see out the side of our eyes. (laughs) So she's over there playing soccer with her daughter, but she's always got in mind what's happening with my son. I really can't tell you what that woman said to her (laughs) at that moment. He was in big trouble. He felt really bad. He was totally stunned to realize that his son had fallen literally right in front of his eyes. Now we'll hear from Dr. Joseph Capizzi. My name is Joseph Capizzi. I am a professor at the Catholic University of America where I teach in moral theology. I've been married for 23 years and I have six children, five girls and one boy. Joe has seen how his boy has learned to be a boy in relation to all of his sisters. I think there's a lot to this idea of John Paul II is that the complementarity of the sexes is pedagogical. It's not simply natural. It actually involves a kind of pedagogy teaching men how to be men by the way women anticipate certain kinds of behavior from men and of course then teaching women how to be women in part by anticipating certain kinds of male behavior and so on. So there's a lot that we can learn from each other clearly and I can see that in the way my own children engage each other. Even when children are older, there is a complementarity at work in discipline. 
mothers and daughters have particular kinds of relationships, as we all know. Again, so everybody, everybody who wasn't Catholic assumed we were having more children because I wanted to have a son. And Mary would say before Peter was born and we only had girls, I, Mary, am going to be the one who's in the unmarked grave. My daughters love their father. Daughters do, and fathers stereotypically end up wrapped around their daughters' fingers because we don't quite know, you know how to deal with women, as every, every woman knows. And girls know very early on that this guy, even though he's my dad, doesn't quite understand me fully so I can you know, work this to my effect. Mary and her daughters sometimes would go at it, and daughters can be hard on their mothers and vice versa, right? At least once or twice, I could see that Mary's attempt to discipline was becoming ineffective because of that female-female engagement. Naturally or otherwise, I just kind of intuited that my role here is to support my wife. And my role is not even in an essence to sort of ask what is the just situation here. The just situation here is for me to express my loyalty to my first responsibility here, my wife, my spouse. So I can remember one time even rather forcefully stepping in to shield Mary from an assault by one of our daughters and to shut it down, like this is over. I think something like that is appropriate to that relationship. Jill points out that sometimes we overthink our roles as men and women, fathers or mothers. Going back to my father's generation, I don't think they would have thought about this at all. You just be a father and you be a mother and this is what it entails. We, you know, we all have a sense of what this means. As our age probably has a crisis of this sort, we're finding ourselves asking questions. What does it mean to be a father? What should I image? How should I act? How should I behave? And it's not unlike an age like ours that is having a crisis of tradition or a crisis of authority, that overthinking what is authority, what is tradition. And again, ages that are traditional don't think this way. As a father within a, a marriage and, you know, in a, in a family, am I supposed to work or not? What happens if I bake bread on the weekend? How does this undermine my manhood or my fatherhood? Or how does it, you know, enrich it? And it's like, this is cuckoo, right? It's cuckoo. Um, I think it's an expression of a crisis that's so deeply built into our culture that focus on thinking about whether to, I mean, the one that bothers me the most is grow a beard, is to miss the point. What it means to be a young man or what it means to be a man, what it means to be a parent and a father in particular, has been kind of cast into confusion. And we're looking for the trappings of it to help us identify the essence of the thing. And if you're Aristotelian, you know, you're going to worry about that approach. Or, and I think that we've got good reason to worry about these things. Deborah tells a story about a bat in which men and women acted in predictable ways. We have our monthly meeting in a very old church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And after the holy hour, we go downstairs to have our meeting and so we're all go we're all going down the stairs talking, laughing, kind of quietly of course after having been in a holy hour. We all walked into this big huge room where we have our meeting and the room is set up it's very big but there's one big ta- sort of big table right in the middle of the room. And we walk down the stairs and as we enter into the room this thing flies right past my head over the heads of the whole group, and we look up, and saints preserve us, it's a bat, flying frantically around the room, trying to find its way out. And what is so immediately apparent in this situation 
is the differences between men and women because within a nanosecond, all the women in the group were underneath the one table in the middle of the room. There's no discussion. There is no what shall we do or no looking around. It was immediate. And in that same time frame, the same nanosecond, all the men, also without any discussion of any kind, no planning, no looking around, all the men had leapt to the rescue. They ran for tools. They got brooms. They got dust mops, a dustpan, a garbage can, plastic bags, anything they could find with which to capture the bat, which they did. And, of course, as soon as they did capture the bat, the women in the group said, and I quote, Oh, please, don't kill the poor thing. It was just a perfect, perfect moment and a perfect example of what men and women tend to do by instinct. After she told this story, I asked Deborah, but what if you're a woman who's not afraid of bats? She reiterated that it's just an illustration of a tendency, not a definition of male and female. We all have capacities that are a part of being human. I wanted to look at complementarity from different angles, so I decided to visit Pat and Elisa Fleming on their farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Hi, <laughs> my name is Elisa Fleming, and I my title, as you'll see it on our website, is the Director of Order and Chaos. I'm a fourth generation on the family farm. I was born in this house, in the farmhouse, and grew up here, and my great-grandfather on my father's side came here shortly after he was married in 1916. Elisa grew up on this farm. It's called Verdant View Farm. You should check it out. Pat is a city boy. He teaches at a nearby university. Patrick Fleming, Elisa's husband. I think my title on the website is Director of Research, or lack thereof. That's right. I'm also the commander-in-beef and the staff comedian. Sometimes I repeat jokes a little too much, which means that uh, the guests laugh more than Elisa does at my jokes. But yeah, I did not grow up on a farm. I met Elisa when I was 17 years old at a high school summer program. When we met, never imagined we'd end up back at a farm, I have to say. So Elisa is the main farmer. There's no project that is defined by our gender, but rather um, using the strengths and the complementarity of our different strengths um, to, to solve problems or work together. I think in terms of how Elise and I divide tasks, a lot of it is based on time constraints and a lot of it is based on interests. Complementarity at its best is recognizing that our differences are a good thing and help to make us better at completing the the tasks that we have and thriving while doing it. Elisa gives farm tours to families and school groups, and often people ask her, so where's the farmer? Because the image most of us have of a farmer is a tall, beefy, white guy with a beard. You know, one thing that Elisa that drives Elisa nuts is when people come to the farm and are talking to her and say, where's the farmer? Because here, she's the farmer. Or they ask, where's your father? Or they ask, where's your brother? Or they ask, where's your husband? Mm -hmm. And I say, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. 
you've gotten used to deflecting that question <laughs> and answering it in a good way. And it's not asked as much as it used to be. On a farm, there's always a lot of work to do. I really appreciated in a farm setting how much we rely on each other mm. and how much you have this fluid movement of tasks mm. responsibilities and seasons Mm -hmm. and so there's this strong interdependence Mm -hmm. between generations and between husband and wife or co-workers Mm -hmm. and just very much you realize that you can't do it alone this kind of mutual mucking in together was modeled by elisa's parents we were able to kind of have this unique model because i saw it modeled by my own parents so my mother was always very involved in the outdoor work. Mm -hmm. She was the oldest in her family and just really loved working outdoors. And she also loved cooking and loved homemaking. And so because I saw that model and that my parents, they encouraged each other and saw the good in working in what their interests had, you know, where their Mm -hmm. interests were, that enables me to also do something similar. I enjoy the diverse tasks Mm -hmm. of every day. and so I, I, and I really love working outside as well. So how does complementarity come into play in other kinds of workplaces? Deborah worked for 25 years in the manufacturing industry. I started out as a production operator. That's how I put myself through college. I made my way up the chain of command, if you will. Once I graduated from college, I got a job as a production supervisor and so on. And I ended up in fairly responsible positions. Deborah saw how women could contribute uniquely in that sector. Women bring a unique genius to the workplace that is often underappreciated because it's a different kind of insight, a different kind of view than the one men offer. And I'm very certain that both women and men are needed in the workplace. And in fact, the church teaches Compendium for Catholic Social Thought, number 295, states, The feminine genius is needed in all aspects of the life of society. Therefore, the presence of women in the workplace must be guaranteed. She talks about how women can keep a holistic view of what is happening or what is necessary for a corporation. Here's an example. I would be the only woman in the room and most most likely the junior person. And they would be about ready to to do something that I consider to be a false step. And I would say, well, wait a second, gentlemen, we really ought to consider this, that, and the other thing. And they would literally say, no, this, that, and the other thing just muddies the waters. We're okay. Let's just do this. And again and again and again, I would turn out to be right. We would end up having to start over or we'd have to repair the damage we'd done by not attending to the whole set of factors required for success from the start. Eventually, they started to listen to me. But up until that point, all they thought I was doing was complicating things. This is an essential contribution to the workplace. Women's voices need to be heard in the running of corporations. And there's been studies done that show that women are less likely to focus only on bottom line results They're much more likely to take in the broad scope of stakeholders and their needs in decision-making. They are more likely to make decisions that are inherently ethical and moral than men are 
I know that's hard to take in, but that seems to be true. They're better listeners. They ask more questions. They seek out advice. And these are all absolutely essential skills in running a successful corporation. Deborah advocates making sure that women have a voice. I have absolutely firsthand experience of the ways in which women contribute, the ways in which women are sidelined. It's absolutely true that sexism exists, but I think it's a mistake to attribute this to some sort of nebulous patriarchy. There's no plot. It's the result of original sin, an inability to recognize the unique gifts that men and women bring to the tasks of human living and then make room for both of them. That's what we need to do is make room for both men and women in our common task. The devil is still tempting both men and women to deny the gifts we were given. Now let's talk about complementarity in the church. John Paul II actually says that it's our complementarity that gives us our mission, which he says is not only to create human families, but to create human history itself. There's a lot of complementarity at work. And some people might think the bishops' conference is all about bishops doing things, but in a major way, they depend on the laity. And most of the people that work in the building in, the, in D.C. are lay men and women. Especially in our office, Laity Marriage, Family Life, and Youth, women play a very important role and, and have leadership positions. There was a specific project that we worked on a few years ago that succeeded as a result of the fruitful collaboration of men and women. We drafted a document a few years ago on pornography. It was a pastoral response to pornography entitled Create in Me a Clean Heart. The drafting team was really led by women, but had a significant collaboration of men as well. So bringing the perspectives of both women and men to the table of that document, I think, helped create a holistic document that would raise up the sensitivities of of victimization of the different aspects of sexual exploitation, but then also be cognizant of the needs and desires of both women and men and what can help. The church also offers an opportunity to think about complementarity in light of the male priesthood. Men are called to become priests. That's a unique call from Christ, and we remain faithful to Christ and to that unique configuration that a priest has to Christ, who is the Son of God, who became man for us and assumed a masculine form. And his masculinity is very important. As Catholics, we understand that that's all kind of within this larger context of God's plan for us. When it comes to church life, when it comes to even thinking of bishops, priests, it's the yes of Mary that is the context for all of that, her yes that really enabled with grace the Son of God, to come into the world and to establish the church. Women do not need to be priests in order to be valued. In fact, that's a pretty male way of thinking about equality, as if the tasks have to be the same in order for us to be equal. You know, some in the church and some outside the church might make the claim that for a woman to kind of really fulfill herself or the, the full, like, kind of calling to leadership or this full equality with men that the church needs to open up the priesthood to women. Like, that's the only way that that's going to happen. There's a mistaken understanding of the nature of priesthood there and the nature of the leadership of a priest and that, that sacramental character that's given in ordination and the service that that is for the church. 
leadership is not reserved to priests. Leadership is not reserved to bishops. And really, in the end, that becomes this clericalism in the church. It may not be put that way explicitly, but it's really there, this kind of sense that the laity needs to become more like priests or ordained ministers, you know, to fulfill their call to be laity. And actually, I mean, women in a particular way are a symbol and a reminder for the church that that cannot be the case. But if all we do is give women a job and a box in the organizational chart so it's clear, finally, what we're supposed to do, that, I'm sorry to say, is a particularly male way of understanding what matters. And that just doesn't matter as much as everyone thinks it does. At the parish level, we all know that women are extremely active. (laughs) Just take a look at who is being an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, who is heading up the committees for pro-life activities or for social justice, who's leading the youth group, etc. At the parish level, complementarity is lived out in, I think, a very rich way that is not apparent when you think just broadly about women in the church. You know, in the United States, there's over 80% of lay ecclesial ministers are women. When it comes to lay leadership, lay involvement in the church at very significant levels, women are often taking the lead in collaborating with priests and deacons and religious. The church in the U.S. kind of leads the way here for the global church, but more can always be done. This episode could go on forever, but I'm going to end with what the church can do to better live the reality of complementarity. There are various ways, I think, that we can kind of talk about sexual difference and complementarity in ways that uphold the mystery of it. There's an indescribable aspect to it because it's so basic to our human experience. It's fundamental. We're at a place in our culture now where the attempt is to dissect it and to break it up, to say that you know male and female are meaningless or their accessories or their things that we can kind of manipulate. We really can't do that. The attempt is being made, but we understand that it's deeper. They're ontological, biological realities that are described in who we are, body and soul. For those that are trying to educate about sexual difference and complementarity, we have to avoid the easy route of stereotypes that would pigeonhole women into women nurture. You know, men don't nurture, they provide. Well, no, that's not the case. You know, it's like women nurture in a very particular way as women. Men nurture in a particular way too. Part of it is is understanding that it's it's first about not what you do, but who you are. Thanks to all my contributors. And check the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org for links to articles and documents on complementarity and even some clips from our videos made for each other and made for life. To leave you, I'm going to share a joke that Pat Fleming told while I was interviewing them. What happens to a frog that's parked illegally? He becomes a toad. He's toad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Nailed it. Nicely done. <laughs> if you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks, everyone.